I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk about the impact Russia's invasion of Ukraine is having on global trade and supply chains, and if our sanctions on Russia are actually working. Don't miss this one. The Trade Guys are coming at you right now. Gentlemen, we're in the third week of Russia's war with Ukraine, and it brings up all kinds of trade and economic issues. The G7 nations have stripped Russia of its most favored nation status. What does that add up to in your guys' judgment? Well, I think in the long term, it means a lot, particularly if if not not just the the G7 and the, the EU as a whole end up doing it, it's going to make a difference in Russian trade. For the United States, it's not huge. What happens in the U.S. if we do that is that that we then start assessing tariffs on Russia on what's known as Column 2, which are the uh, tariffs left over from the Smoot-Hawley Act from 1930. And they're higher, a lot higher in some cases, but they're not higher on a lot of things that we import from Russia. And there's a reason for that. Our tariff schedules generally have, and, and particularly Smoot-Hawley, tried to keep tariffs on raw materials low because the idea, if you're going to be a protectionist, the idea was let in all the raw materials and all the parts and components without tariffs so that we can then be more competitive with our finished products and not have to pay a premium in, in making them. And the reality is what we get from Russia is mostly raw materials. Now, there are some palladium, which is a key ingredient in converters, nickel, which is a key ingredient in a lot of things, including batteries, for which demand is sharply growing, uranium for nuclear power plants, titanium for airplane skins. Russia's major suppliers of all those, they're not the only supplier, so there are alternatives, but what you're going to see there is not so much a tariff increase. I think you're just going to find our supply chain managers shifting out of, out of Russian exports just because of the risk assessment makes it much too risky to, to buy anything from them right now. And then there's going to be a hunt for other sources. That means supply chain disruptions and price increases. Well, actually not. And that's part of the problem here. We talked a little bit last week, whether the, the and Bill described the, the most favored nation tariffs versus the column two tariffs, and that there's really not much, uh, there's not much juice in that squeeze. I think the overall point, though, is trade, terms of trade really matter to trading nations. Russia is not a trading nation. They're a commodity producing nation. Their big exports tend to be things like, well, obviously crude oil and the many forms of hydrocarbons that they export, but also they have 40% of the world's output in palladium. So it's those metals and raw materials that are the key to Russia's interactions with the world. My view of this is, look, we've thrown everything but the kitchen sink at them in terms of financial and trade sanctions and not changed behavior. And that's what gives me pause, because if we're doing this to a trading nation, I think you would get at least some response that there'd be some notion that this has to be recalibrated. But it looks to me like Russia has basically protected its domestic economy, maybe did a trial run for this in 2014 when the Crimea incident happened. And they may be just OK to ride this out. In the meantime, the world is going to deal with both the consequences of this and Russian countermeasures. And that, for me, is the problem. Look, $100 barrel oil is, adds to inflationary pressure. You remember February. Okay, February, the consumer price index increased up roughly 8%. Producer prices were up roughly 10%. 
But the invasion of Ukraine happened the 24th of February. So those numbers didn't really reflect the shock of the invasion. We'll have more inflation pressure. Next, when, when hydrocarbon prices go up, so does the cost of fertilizer and the cost of farming in general. So food shortages start to become an interesting issue that needs attention. Then you get into countermeasures. So like Russia is already planning to keep any foreign-owned or foreign-leased jet aircraft that was on the ground when the airspace closed in return for the seizure of yachts in Europe. So this is going to be really messy. Scott was said something particularly important, which is looking ahead is I'm very worried about food and fertilizer. First of all, what we're seeing now in some quarters is exactly what we saw the onset of COVID, which is panic and hoarding. Countries stocking up, countries imposing export controls on their products. All of that simply makes the situation worse. Six months from now, people will realize that they overreacted and we get back to some variation of normal. But in the short run, it's going to cause a lot of disruption. Primary victims here is not going to be the United States. We have plenty of wheat and we have plenty of corn and our farmers are going to do pretty well selling it at very high prices to other parts of the world. But it's countries in the Middle East and North Africa in particular who are dependent on Ukrainian oils and wheat and and flour that are already scrambling for alternative sources. And they're not in a financial position to pay huge amounts in higher prices. So uh, I'm worried about what's going to happen in those countries. And e- even the stuff that's been harvested, and there is is some, is blocked because uh, they can't get it out of Odessa. Yeah, well, there's no question that it's going to hurt African countries and countries that are already food insecure. But Russia has now surpassed North Korea and Iran to become the most sanctioned country. Where can the international community go from here in terms of future trade measures? Well, I think we have to decide whether any of this worked. Uh, the problem is Russia is quite difficult to affect materially with trade sanctions. Look, the run on the ruble and the depreciation of the ruble outside Russia will hurt the Russians who are at the top echelon of the income scale. If you have an apartment in London or you have property in anywhere in Western Europe in the, in the high income countries of what uh, I guess Don, Don Rumsfeld called old Europe, then you're going to feel the pinch. So if you're buying products from Europe, that's a problem. I don't think the average Russian is. The Russian economy, in terms of production of staples, production of basic goods, still has access to big producing markets like China and India, which have not sanctioned it. But also, they can, they can stabilize the internal economy and keep the ruble exchanging. The ruble is one of those currencies that, while it depreciated rapidly in terms of its foreign stocks, the internal value of the ruble probably held up. So it's not clear to me that the average Russian is experiencing any more inflation than the average Marylander is at this point. Two things to watch for. The Russians have a debt payment today on some of their bonds. I don't know what happened yet, but people are watching closely to see if they default or not. If they default, it would really knock them out of financial markets and out of borrowing for quite some time to come. And that would have a really devastating impact on, on their domestic economy. To get back to Andrew's question, I think the one thing that you could do that would probably cripple them would be to embargo their oil and gas globally, because it really is an energy-based economy. That's where most of their government income comes from. That hasn't happened. It probably won't happen for two reasons. First of all, it's kind of an indispensable product, and you can't switch immediately 100%. I mean, the Europeans are trying to figure out ways to get out of Russian gas. At the same time, they're trying to figure out ways to get out of gas, period, because uh, for, for climate reasons. But that is going to be a, 
a slow process at best. And, you know, the problem with sanctions always is it's like pushing on the balloon. You squeeze here and you squeeze here. It just pops out somewhere else. If the Chinese start buying the gas and the oil, we haven't really accomplished anything. I mean, I, that, that's not necessarily happening right now, but that's one of the things you have to worry about when you're deciding whether or not to impose these things. Yeah, keep in mind that Europe did not stop buying Russian oil or Russian gas. And in fact, the limits on the transactions through SWIFT that were made allowed for continued trading in oil and gas so that those trades can be settled. But what I'm watching, Andrew, is how trades get settled. Are they settled on time? In what currency are they settled? I mean, worldwide, hydrocarbon trades tend to be settled in dollars, but that's, that's not necessarily true. Are they settled in rubles? Are they settled in euros? Well, I mean, we'll find out. Do they go unsettled? Because then that's where the contracts start to break down. That's why today's debt repayment issue, I think, is important because I think these particular bonds cannot be paid in, interest cannot be paid in rubles. So it'll be interesting to see if they dig into their reserves to do it or if they default. There are some bonds where they, they can be paid in rubles, apparently. Bill, can you explain that a little bit more? Why is that issue so important? Well, all countries borrow to finance expenditures. Tax revenue doesn't always come in evenly. If you run a deficit, then you have to borrow regardless. The United States government borrows. That's why we have a debt in the trillions, because we borrowed. Now, lots of times you borrow from your own citizens, but the United States, like other governments, including Russia, sells their bonds to foreigners. So you've got foreigners holding Russian debt. And the bonds have interest payment requirements. And I mean, different bonds have different requirements of, of when the interest has to be paid and what the interest rate is and so on and so forth. But when there's a big bond issue, there's usually a big payment that comes due at specific dates. And today happens to be one of those dates. It's important if the country doesn't pay. Because if the country doesn't pay, then it's defaulted. And what that means is nobody's going to buy their bonds in the future. And they're not going to be able to borrow. And if they can't borrow, then they really are not going to be able to finance their government. So this really is adding up to some pain for them. The other question I wanted to ask is, well, Europe hasn't cut them off from oil and gas. Has the United States totally cut them off yet? We're about to. We, we didn't buy their gas anyway. So that is sort of a, a, a moot point. Congress is in the process of passing legislation that will embargo their oil their oil was declining uh, anyway on a monthly basis, and it's it's down now to you know a single a single digit percentage of our our total. What is it, Scott? Six, seven? I forget what the. Yes, it's a relatively small quantity. What it was though was it was an efficient way to balance the fuel blends in certain parts of the United States. I think particularly the, the West Coast, California has many many different fuel blends given the time of year. Hawaii, the same story. They have the unique blends. And crude oil was an efficient way to get the blend that they needed. What will happen is they'll have to use less efficient alternatives. And so it puts upward pressure on gasoline prices at the pump. It sounds like it's going to hit Hawaii yes. harder than anybody else because they get a decent amount of oil from Russian Asia. Relatively short trip. Yes. So we're, we're, we're close to it. But keep in mind that the Russian gas is what's keeping homes in Europe warm this winter, natural gas, and that Ukraine has under its soil the pipeline that connects Russian gas to European homes. And they are a toll processor. They, they get revenue from gas traveling. So both Russia and Ukraine uh, are benefiting from the sole source gas it, that's consumed in Europe. If it, if it weren't a matter of life and death, we'd have a discussion about 
how this is the Baptists and bootleggers problem in economics. But uh, we have groups with different interests that like to say that wind up liking the same solution for the wrong for a different. So reasons. who's who's the Baptist and who's the bootleggers? I, it's hard to tell in this situation, and I I, I think we'd uh, we'd probably lose some of our audience if I I don't I don't think the ba- I don't think the Russians are the Baptists. Uh, no, they're the bootleggers, and I think the Europeans are the Baptists. The Europeans want the sanctions. But they need the gas. <laughs> they don't. They don't want the. <laughs> they don't want the cold homes. <laughs> Who does? I mean, but it's hard to imagine a scenario where the United States ever does business with Russia again with Vladimir Putin in charge. Yeah. In any way. Well, that's what I think people here at CSIS have started to think about what the long-term consequences are, and I think it depends a little bit on the scenario. What happens in the war? You know. It's possible, I think today unlikely, but it's possible that, you know, this could end on terms that are acceptable to the United States and the Ukrainians. I think in, that's a case where companies would be encouraged to come back in and to Russia. And Russia, uh, I wouldn't say exactly would be welcome, but might be tolerated. I think that's not the most likely outcome, but it's, you know, a possible one. The more likely ones are Russia wins in, in the sense that they occupy the country. I don't think that the insurgency won't go away. But if they if that happens, then they're a pariah state and they'll be a pariah state, I think, as long as they occupy Ukraine. The third scenario, which is probably the most likely, unless they can work out a peace agreement, which apparently they're making some progress on. I was surprised to see that today. But the more likely scenario is this grinding, awful, destructive stalemate in which the Russians don't win, uh, but don't leave. And they continue to destroy cities and continue to attack civilians. The Ukrainians continue to kill Russian soldiers. And this just goes on. And it goes on possibly for, for years. You know, this is a situation where you have one country that has, where the countries are enormously mismatched in firepower. You know, you have a much bigger military on one side, but you have enormous determination on the other side. And the Ukrainian people are, by all signs, are not going to give up. They're not going to surrender. And they're going to continue fighting. I mean, unfortunately, that's a recipe for just continued tragedy. But I think that's the way we're going. But as long as that goes on, uh, Russia is going to be a pariah. I don't think anybody's going to do, do business with them. And you can't find many countries that are standing up for them publicly. You may find a few that are going to cheat on sanctions, but you can't find anybody who's saying, we're with you. The other, only other thing that I would suggest we watch is how long this stays on the front burner for Americans. We have a notoriously short attention span. All right. What, what, wait a second. What were we talking about again? Right. <laughs> and uh, we can go to move to the next outrage pretty quickly. Keep in mind the outrage about Crimea in 2014. We forgot about that very quickly. Okay. And I think we move on fast. And so, Bill, my concern here is that maybe it does turn into a siege and grinds very slowly. It's entirely possible that Americans move on. And the attention moves on to whatever whatever comes up next, including our own elections and domestic politics. Yeah, I kind of think not. I think this is too horrible. Too horrible. I'm with you, Bill. I mean, the, the interesting thing about warfare these days is it's is how public it's become. You know, because it's it's instantaneous. People walk down the street with you know with their iPhones and their cameras, and they're taking pictures of bodies in the street. And five minutes later, these things are viral. Viral. They're all over the world. This is you know caught the world's conscience. And I don't think it's going to get forgotten. It's, it was unprovoked and it's brutal. Brutal. Too many civilian deaths, too much destruction. Well, let's, let's check back in a month, see where we are. I, I hope you guys are right, to be honest with you. But let's hope they're not still going at it in a month. Bill, I want to turn to one of your favorite subjects, the WTO. 
Some have said that the Russian invasion of Ukraine would have a dramatic meaning for the WTO's future. What do you guys think about this? Well, it doesn't help the organization. It's a blow. What you've got is right now a significant number of countries suspending or terminating their most favored nation benefits, which means they are all collectively violating their WTO obligations. They will argue that Article 21 of the GATT allows them to do that in times of war. And that's an argument that is, I think, probably a persuasive one. I mean, the Martians may may litigate. I mean, they may make a complaint in the WTO and we'll see what happens. I think the, the parties that have done it will probably win. The whole issue undermines the organization. Russia's a member. So you've got members fighting each other now. And you're talking about, you know, how do we kick them out when there's no process for doing that? It's not a healthy sign. I have to say, at the same time, all that is happening. There was potential good news yesterday where it, it sounds as though they, India, South Africa, the EU, and the U.S. have reached a compromise on the vaccine waiver issue, which is the other issue that has been bedeviling the WTO for the last year and a half and uh, where the Indians have been totally intransigent on, on trying to settle the issue. And now, as of yesterday, maybe they have. You know, there's not a text yet. And it's only four parties. The rest of the members have to agree to it. But it's a happy sign, you know, and I think good news that all is not lost at the WTO, at least not yet. Well, look, the old hands uh, have been in the press these days. Friends of ours, friends of the program, talking about their concern about sort of the WTO's drift. And they talk about the drift toward irrelevance. And it may have already arrived. We're not so sure. I'm not so sure. But since we've done almost nothing but talk for 20 years, at the WTO. But there is, are some signs of life. And I would point back to the work that CSIS did with the Commission on Advancing American Leadership back in 2018, 2019 with Fred Smith and Bill Brock and uh, Charlene Barshevsky. We have some proposals that I think would fit very nicely with a revival of the WTO with a group of, of interested and engaged members. So that, that's the irony. What, what Rufus and Wendy were talking about. And what Senator Portman was talking about in a bill that he introduced last week is very similar to exactly what we recommended. We were there first, but no, which was let's no, develop a coalition of the willing who are willing to move farther on trade liberalization. Maybe it's time to dust that report off, gentlemen. Yes, no pride of ownership. They can take all they want and claim their claim credit as <laughs> much as they want. But we'll uh, just keep taking credit too, though. Let's get it. Let's get it going. I'll take the credit for you guys. We'll, we'll, you you guys won't have to do it. I'll just we appreciate you stepping in on that, Andrew. I'll bring it to CSIS. Just don't don't you worry. Finally, I want to talk for a minute about the supply chain crisis that this is causing. The invasion of Ukraine seems to be causing a crisis at sea. Russia's invasion of Ukraine's wreaking havoc on global shipping, which transports 80% of the world's trade. Ships are now sailing oceans unable to deliver and pick up cargo. 140 merchant vessels are stuck in Ukrainian ports that risk it coming under fire. And this is all really terrible because food and other provisions, as we discussed earlier, are, are running low. What is happening here to supply chains? And is there a way to mitigate this? Well, look. A lot of the ships that are stuck are have the products that, that are needed elsewhere for sure. And many of those are tankers with filled with hydrocarbons. So this is disruption in the trade. It's reflected in the price of commodities. There's also a human side to this, which is another outbreak of COVID in China has caused major shutdowns. And eventually, uh, while ships and infrastructure matters, supply chains are run by people. And it's people who, who move the goods, who drive the vehicles, who pilot the ships. 
and indeed run the factories and distribution centers that produce the finished products. So nothing's back to normal. And uh, for seemingly a lot of reasons, some of which are related, many of which are not. It's sad because just as we were hopefully coming out of COVID and things were beginning to stabilize, now this comes along and it just takes us right back to where we were, right back to where we were before. And there's also a human element to it as well, because you've got a lot of sailors that are trapped in uh, Ukrainian ports that can't get out because the, the Russians have blockaded the ports. And so the, nobody can get in, nobody can get out. Cargo is not just the only thing that's trapped, and it's going to cause, God said, supply chain disruptions and, and price increases. I think for the Americans, it's going to be mostly reflected in price increases on critical commodities uh, and particularly um, food. I think, you know, we're okay, although prices are going to go up. Gentlemen, let me ask again, though, on one other thing. You mentioned China's strict COVID policy. They're locking down again. What can firms do to minimize disruptions relating to China's lockdown? Look, I think there are a lot of uh, resilience has been built into supply chains based on the learnings of the past couple of years. I think, I think without what's been done in terms of adaptive behavior, qualifying new suppliers, and all those measures, without what's actually been done in the last two years, it's almost invisible to the consumer. But without that, we'd be seeing many more out of stocks, many more disruptions. So something we've got to live with. But uh, resilience of these supply chains has become a big issue for anybody who's involved in them. I'm a cynic on this. My answer is the only answer is to get out of China. And I think that's the way these things are going. Even outside COVID, the risk of doing business in China has gone up by several orders of magnitude because of their actions. The United States is in the process of encouraging, not forcing, but encouraging reshoring or nearshoring. I mean, companies are going to make decisions that are in their economic interest, but as the risk of having a supply chain that involves Chinese production goes up and the uncertainties, is it, you know, for example, are the parts and components made with forced labor, which is going to be a continuing issue with China? Is the factory that I rely on going to get shut down because there's going to be a COVID outbreak? Is the Chinese government going to do something new to make my life more complicated? The smart decision uh, really is for them to decide, let's look around for alternative sources of supply. And I just think, you know, this is sand leaking out of the bag. This is not like tomorrow everybody's leaving. But, you know, five or 10 years from now, you're going to see a different global supply chain profile than you see today. Gentlemen, thank you as always for your insights today. We will uh, be back next week with more. Thank you so much. There'll be more problems to talk about. That's for sure. Yeah, that's true. Yes. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.